Delegates from around the world are gathering in Canada to address the decline in biodiversity. 50% of the global GDP, our economy, depends on biodiversity. And scientists say more than a million species are at risk of extinction, many within a decade. This is Tuesday, December 6th. You're listening to All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, China is holding a memorial service for its late leader, Zhang Zemin, at Beijing's Great Hall of the People. We'll hear about his legacy. And former NFL star Deion Sanders is facing criticism for abruptly leaving his head coaching job at a historically black university. Anytime a college football coach leaves an HBCU, particularly for a PWI, a predominantly white institution, mm-hmm, it's going to ruffle a few feathers. More on that controversy coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. House Select Committee investigating the pro-Trump attack on the U.S. Capitol last year is considering issuing criminal referrals. NPR's Barbara Sprint has more. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson told reporters that criminal referrals are likely. What we've decided is that we will probably make referrals as to how many. We've not decided on the number. Thompson added the committee hasn't made a decision on who would be named in a criminal referral. He said the panel is still working on the comprehensive report of its findings. It's currently eight chapters long, but Thompson didn't say when the report will be released. The panel is due to sunset at the end of December. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, the Capitol. We've just learned that former President Donald Trump's company has been convicted of tax fraud for a scheme by top executives to avoid paying personal income taxes on perks such as apartments and luxury cars. Reuters News Service reporting that as punishment, the Trump organization could be fined up to $1.6 million. That reporting rather from the Associated Press. Former President Trump's hold on the GOP figures prominently in a critical race underway in Georgia. Herschel Walker, whom Trump endorsed, is vying for the Senate seat currently held by Democrat Raphael Warnock. The outcome determines whether the Democrats expand their ranks, which could support the Biden administration's agenda against resistance in the House, where the Republicans will take control in January. Grant Blankenship of Georgia Public Broadcasting reports the issue of abortion rights appears to be taking on new prominence for voters in today's runoff election. The choice for Georgia voters on one issue is very clear. Democratic candidate Raphael Warnock supports abortion rights. Republican Herschel Walker does not. And the recent Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade is top of mind for many at the polls today. That includes Anne-Marie Wimberly, who summed up her motivation to vote in one word. Roe. I have children, and um, I want my daughters to have the same kind of rights that I had growing up, so I find that's important. A Warnock win would build on the Democrats' Senate majority, but it won't likely be enough to move federal abortion legislation that would supersede state laws like Georgia's that make most abortions illegal after six weeks of pregnancy. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Macon, Georgia. When it comes to the 747, the aviation industry is witnessing the end of an era. The first of the wide-body jets known for that distinctive hump in the front of its nose where the cockpit's located is no longer being manufactured. Its maker, Boeing, is now transitioning from the four-engine jetliner to produce two-engine wide-body aircraft known to burn cleaner because of newer technology. Dow Jones Industrial Average closing down 351 points. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congressman Diana Presley is applauding the Biden administration's move to extend temporary protected status to Haitian migrants until August 2024. Gang violence, a cholera outbreak, and recent earthquakes in Haiti prompted the extension. Presley says the extension will save lives by preventing deportations to that country. She and some colleagues urged President Biden in a letter last week to protect Haitian migrants in the U.S. Massachusetts is home to the third largest Haitian diaspora community in the country. Pharmaceutical giant Pfizer is teaming up with Cambridge startup Clear Creek to develop new treatments for COVID-19. The two companies announced today they'll work together to develop new antiviral pills to treat the disease. Financial terms of the deal with (coughs) Pfizer were not disclosed. And the Baker administration is awarding more than $11 million to organizations across Massachusetts to combat youth violence. The bulk of the money will go to 15 agencies and targeted communities, including Boston, Lawrence, Fall River, and Pittsfield. 55 degrees now, lots of clouds for the remainder of the day and the evening. And overnight tonight, too, temperatures should be about 47 degrees overnight tonight, a few showers around. Then for tomorrow, a foggy start, rain pretty much off and on through the day. Relatively mild, though, temperatures in the mid-50s should have sunshine on Thursday with highs in the low 50s. 55 degrees now in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. Big story in the news today. Former President Donald Trump's company has been convicted of tax fraud. We'll be hearing about that in just a few minutes. But first, we need to give you another big story for us, an important update on our fundraiser. We have fallen considerably behind where we need to be to meet our goal by the end of this fundraiser tomorrow. So we're asking you to help us right now get caught up. Please give at WBUR.org or call one 800 909-9287. I'm Lisa Mullins, and here to stress that message, because it does indeed need stressing, uh, are with me, Anthony Brooks and Emery Sievertson. Hello, Lisa. And yes, we are here to remind you that when we when we say that we're trying to support WBUR with listener support, we're talking about you. We're, I'm, I'm talking to you right now, the person who maybe has been sitting on the sidelines thinking that we're talking to everyone else out there. But no, it takes all of us. It takes all of us doing our part, doing just what we can. Maybe it's $10 a month. Maybe it's a larger gift right now to help WBUR cross the finish line of $250 or $500. What's your part? Do it now by calling 1-800-909-9287 or giving online as generously as you can at WBUR.org. Right. So here's the challenge. We have fallen considerably behind where we need to be to meet our goal uh, by the end of this fundraiser tomorrow. So we're asking you to help us right now to help catch us up. But here's the good news. It's in your hands. You can do this. You can help us get to where we need uh, to get. And uh, we're asking you to do this, as Amory said, because this is uh, an essential source of news and information. We've got big stories that we're covering right now, including the Georgia Senate race, the January 6th committee uh, deciding to make criminal referrals, and as Lisa mentioned, Trump's um, uh, 
company facing uh, charges of uh, being convicted, essentially, of tax fraud. So there's a lot going on in the world. We cover it all. You help us pay for it. So do it right now by giving us a call at 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org. Absolutely. Uh, Please call right now. Please make the pledge of support at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The natural world is in a steep and worrying decline. More than a million species are at risk of, of extinction, many within decades because of human actions. This week, delegates from around the world are gathering in Canada to try to come up with a plan to slow that decline. To talk about this convention on biological diversity, we are joined by NPR's Nathan Rod. Hey, Nate. Hey, Mary Louise. Set the stage for me a little bit more here. What exactly is happening this week in Canada? Okay, so you remember that climate conference just a few weeks ago in Egypt, COP27? Mm-hmm. This is basically the biodiversity, the nature equivalent to that. Delegates from more than 190 countries are all going to try to get together to try to approve a global plan uh, to save the natural world. A global plan to save the natural world. Just a, Just a small mission there. Yeah, small, small potatoes. You know, it's easy to think about biodiversity when we're talking about it as just being cute, furry critters, right? The polar bear at risk from declining sea ice. Uh, But when we are talking about biodiversity, really, we're talking about so much more here. The science is extremely clear on this. Healthy, intact nature is essential to pretty much every part of the human experience. You know, trees and plankton make the oxygen we breathe, wetlands clean the water we drink, peatlands store climate warming carbon, biodiversity feeds us, it pays the bills. Uh, Here's Elizabeth Maruma Mremma, the executive secretary of the Convention on Biological Diversity. 50% of the global GDP, our economy, depends on biodiversity. And yet, we human beings, we have distorted that biodiversity nature by 97% globally. So she says the main goal of this convention is to basically balance the scales, to come out of this with a roadmap for fixing that relationship with nature. What kind of a roadmap? What, What might it look like? So there's a draft that we've been able to see. It has 22 specific goals. Probably the flashiest goal in that is a pledge to conserve 30% of the Earth's land and water by the year 2030. It's also known as 30 by 30. The Biden administration is taking steps already to do this here in the U.S., uh, but what that looks like globally is still a really big question. There are concerns in some parts of the world that this could enable countries to displace indigenous people by declaring a place conserved which, remember, Mary Louise, is basically what happened with national parks here in the U.S. (laughs) Scientists say humans have significantly altered 75% of the Earth's land and two-thirds of the oceans. And a study published last year, which was far bleaker, uh, suggested only 3%, just 3% of the world's natural places are still ecologically intact. Um, So obviously, there's a huge need to protect areas. 
But remember, this is a convention of more than 190 countries uh, who will all have to agree on a path forward. And as we saw at the climate conference last month, uh, there's going to be disagreements about what that actually looks like. Well, and having just interviewed you when you were at that climate conference in Egypt, it was it was very clear. It's one thing to set goals. It's another to keep them, to do them. Is that concern yeah. here as well? It most definitely is. You know, we've had 27 climate conferences and climate warming emissions are still on the rise. Uh, the same is very true here. The last big framework on biodiversity, like the one they're doing now, set 20 goals to achieve for the year 2020. They did not achieve any of them. Uh, and given the rate of extinction we're seeing, the climate disasters like flooding, fires and droughts, you know, there's a real sense that this framework needs to not only be ambitious, it needs to be achieved. That is Nathan Rott from NPR's Climate Desk. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Ultranationalists are about to have a lot more power in Israel. And in a moment, we're going to get a tour of some hotspots where they could exert their influence the most. Benjamin Netanyahu is returning as prime minister with a coalition that includes the far right. It will be perhaps the most right-wing government in Israel's history. One prominent member will be Itamar Ben-Gvir, previously convicted for anti-Arab racism and now on tap to oversee the Israeli police. NPR's Daniel Estrin has been exploring what this could mean, and he joins us now from Jerusalem. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Wana. So, Daniel, this government is being watched for how it might change the nature of Israel's democracy and whether it could escalate ongoing violence between Israelis and Palestinians. And you started at perhaps the most combustible place, the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. Yeah, this is the most revered holy site in the Holy Land. It is often the eye of the storm here. This is a place that's sacred to Muslims around the world. It's associated with the Prophet Muhammad. It's also sacred in Jewish tradition as the spot where the ancient temples stood in biblical times. And nationalist Jewish groups have been asserting their presence at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound more and more. They want the right to pray there. Whenever we've seen that Palestinians perceive Israelis are encroaching on this site, we've seen violence, and that violence spreads. And there is the chance that the potential for violence could be higher under the incoming Israeli government. Itamar Ben-Gvir has been a longtime proponent of Jewish prayer at this Muslim-run site. He is tapped to oversee the police as the Minister of National Security. And so nationalist Jewish groups who visit there every day are feeling really good right now. They're feeling that they're going to get more rights at uh, what they consider to be the Temple Mount. I was there with them recently. So who were you with and what did you see there? Yeah, I was with a group of 20 Orthodox Jews. They walked the perimeter of this compound every morning. And when I spoke with one of the Jewish activists, Rabbi Shimshon Elboim, he says, listen, our strategy is baby steps. He's hoping that this new Israeli government might start with allowing them more expanded visiting hours for Jews, uh, maybe eventually leading to Jewish prayer. I asked him, could Jewish prayer at this Muslim-run site inflame the entire Middle East? And he says, you know, Israel, the country, also came into being through war. No one gives up their dreams just because it comes with a price. So, Daniel, what do Palestinians at this religious site think about what the new Israeli government might end up doing? I spoke about that with a member of the Muslim Advisory Council there, Mustafa Abu Sway. And he says, you know, listen, this is a mosque complex. It's administered by Jordan. It's been a Muslim-run religious site for hundreds of years. And he thinks Jewish groups are trying to change that. I am worried. I am very worried. I am really worried. 
And remember, last year, tensions at this site concerning Israeli police violence against Palestinian demonstrators escalated into a full-fledged war with Gaza. I'm curious, what about inside Israel? How could this new government affect relationships between Palestinians and Jewish Israelis who sometimes are sharing the same towns? That's right. We're talking about the 20% of Israel's citizens who are Palestinian Arab. And this is a big question that Israel faces. Can it be a Jewish state and still protect democracy and equal rights for its Palestinian citizens. Um, these are people who frequently face discrimination in Israel. And this new Israeli government is going to be prioritizing Israel's Jewish character. So a good place to imagine how these tensions might be playing out is a city called Lod. This is a city where Arabs and Jews literally live in the same apartment buildings side by side. Last year, when there was tension at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Palestinian citizens in Lod protested, and there were street fights. I was there. I saw burned-out cars. I saw synagogues and mosques that were damaged and attacked. Arab and Jewish neighbors in this city were killed. And when I went back to that city last week to ask people about this new Israeli government, I met a rabbi there, Chagai Greenfield. His synagogue was damaged last year, and he is happy about the new government. The story is a struggle between identities, the Jewish identity and the Arab identity. It won't be solved by regular civilian uh, rights. It cannot be solved by that way. It has to be solved by, by showing the Arabs that the Jews are the ones that rule over. And he told me that he only felt safe last year when armed Israeli volunteers, basically militia, were roaming the streets. And Itamar Ben-Gvir was actually the one who encouraged those armed Israelis to go to that town last year. And now... As Minister of National Security, he wants tougher policing of Arabs and Palestinians. This has Palestinians in the city worried, that this is just a preview of what is to come under the new government. I spoke with an Arab city councilman from a neighboring city. His name is Mino Abu Laban. Here's what he said. He told me a man like Ben Gvir, who incites against me, is now going to be responsible for my safety. So, Daniel, we have talked about Palestinian-Israeli relations, Arab-Jewish relations. What else can you tell us about what these incoming far-right leaders plan to do in government? They're talking about a lot of far-reaching policies that could affect pluralism and could affect democratic institutions in Israel. I attended a meeting of democracy activists who are trying to map out what to expect. This is Shatil, an umbrella organization that advises NGOs, civil society groups in Israel. And they're predicting that the first major step this Israeli government could take is a major overhaul of the legal system, the independence of the judiciary, making the Supreme Court not be the final say in Israeli legislation. And remember, the Supreme Court in Israel is historically the branch of government that defends Palestinians and minority rights and protections for African asylum seekers and so many more. So, Daniel, given all of the scenarios that you've described so far, it leaves me wondering, will Benjamin Netanyahu let his far-right allies really do all of these things? It's an excellent question because the far-right does have a lot of leverage over Netanyahu. He is on trial for corruption, and his far-right allies are willing to manipulate the legal system to shield him from prison time. Now, Netanyahu is making the case he's going to be the one in control here. He's going to be protecting LGBTQ rights. He's going to be responsible with policy. Another question is how will the U.S. view all of this? The Biden administration is concerned about 
Israeli democracy under this new government. It's concerned about policy it might take toward Palestinians. The question is, how much will the Biden administration be willing to push back on the far right in Israel's new government? That's NPR's Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Daniel, thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. Coming up on WBR's All Things Considered, mixed messages about the U.S. job market and the legacy of the late Chinese leader Zhang Zemin, who ruled the country at a time when the government there was far less repressive. The Dow fell about 1% or 351 points to close at 33,596. S&P and Nasdaq followed suit. S&P closed lower for a fourth straight day, down nearly 1.5% to end the day at 39.41. The Nasdaq fell 2% to close at 11,015. Details coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace. In the forecast, clouds galore tonight and tomorrow. Sporadic showers, especially tomorrow. Not too chilly overnight tonight in the mid-40s and then climbing to the mid-50s tomorrow. The sun should finally move back in on Thursday with highs in the low 50s. 55 degrees now in Boston at 421. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And the Holiday Pops, helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops. Now through December 24th, holidaypops.org. You know, we consider you a part of WBUR, a major part of WBUR, and in fact, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for your support. So we have to tell you right now, to be totally transparent, we are falling considerably behind where we need to be to meet our fundraising goal for this end-of-year fundraiser by the end of the fund drive, which is tomorrow evening. So we are asking right now for you to help us get caught up. Give at WBUR.org. Or please call now, 1-800-909-9287. I'm Lisa Mullins, and here to help me to make this point is Anthony Briggs and also Amory Sievertson. Hi, Lisa. And yes, this fundraiser ends tomorrow, whether we wrap it up successfully or not. But it ain't over till it's over, and we cannot wrap it up without you, without your support. You listening out there, you who depends on all things considered, on programs like Morning Edition, on the stories that help you make sense of your world, tell you what's happening, what it means in your community, in your region, in the country, and in your world, in your family, you know, in, in, the, in the lives of the people who matter most to you. You hear that from WBUR. It matters to you, and it matters to us that you call right now, 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org, and you decide an amount that really is going to help fortify the foundation of WBUR that is built on public support. 
again, we are considerably behind where we need to be. But the good news is that you can help us bring this train home. This is such an important time to support WBUR with local journalism outlets being cut, with democracy literally under attack in some quarters. Lots of us depend more than ever on WBUR and the whole public radio universe for thoughtful, unbiased journalism. But this is an expensive business. We need your help to pay for it. Your contributions go directly into supporting the programs that you depend on. So we're asking you to give what you can, $10, $20, $30 a month, probably less than you might spend at Starbucks, but that kind of contribution will make a huge difference to us. So do what you can right now, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And if you've already called in the fun drive, thank you so much. If you haven't, please do it right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you again. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone betterhelp.com slash public. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. China's Communist Party bid farewell to former leader Zhang Zemin today. The ceremony was led by current leader Xi Jinping, and it comes at a tricky time in Chinese politics. You will recall that last week, people took to the streets in cities across China to protest Xi and his strict COVID policies. For more on the moment, we turn to NPR's Frank Langfitt, who covered both presidents, Xi and as a reporter in China. Hey, Frank. Hey, Mary Louise. Tell me how today's ceremony unfolded. How did the Communist Party choose to to portray Zhang to honor him? Yeah, it was really interesting. Xi Jinping gave nearly an hour-long eulogy, and it was, let me just set the scene, it was in the Great Hall of the People, which is sort of this cavernous building, big auditorium, and you had hundreds and hundreds of officials in dark suits with white carnations in their lapels. And up on stage, Mary Louise, there was a picture, a photo of John that was probably 15 to 20 feet high. Hmm. And big. Yes, it's huge. I mean, just, I mean, it really was like, it was a little bit like a pageant in some ways. And she praised you know, Zhang as this economic reformer who helped set the stage for, you know, massive economic growth in the country, which, which made a huge difference in people's lives. He also praised Zhang as a loyal defender of Communist Party power and no softy. Now, this is what she said uh, in English translation. He pointed out that to do a good job of governing the country, the party must first do a good job of governing itself, and that means governing it strictly. Interesting. And I was going to ask, Frank, whether there's anything surprising about all this ceremony and pageantry by President Xi for, for a man who was his predecessor and who ran the country in a really different way. In a really different way. And I think it was it was a huge send-off for Jiang Zemin. I mean, it was a surprise in the sense that I don't think analysts see the two of them as buddies. They're very, as you were saying, very different leaders, very different eras. And 
I can remember people who follow China will remember this. There was one very, very long Xi speech on national television where Zhang used a giant magnifying glass to read the speech. He repeatedly checked his watch and then even fell asleep at points. <laughs> Right. So they were not seen as close friends. And John was very, he was a funny guy in some ways. Um, some people think that in the wake of these protests, that she may have wanted to show a sense of party solidarity and, and a unified leadership. You said he was a funny guy. Tell me more about how both these leaders are perceived in China. I mean, as, head, as heads of state, but also just as people. Yeah, very completely different. I mean, Jiang was flamboyant. He used to sing in public. I can remember him, a famous TV speech where he just ripped into Hong Kong journalists. Some people probably saw him as a showboat and a, and a bit of a buffoon. But then when she came along, you know, this is a guy who is pretty much expressionless and comes across as a Communist Party heavy, not much of a sense of a discernible personality. And so people actually quite surprisingly, became nostalgic for Zhang. If, he, if you remember, he had these giant glasses, and some people thought he looked a bit like a toad. So when he turned 90, this was in 2016, people, young people came online praising him in what was called toad worship. And this was also a way to kind of take a dig at Xi, who's, you know, pretty colorless and much, certainly much more authoritarian in his approach. And I got to say, if you had told me back in 1997 when I started covering China that Zhang would actually have young fans in recent years, I never would have believed it. Yeah. Um, people who listen to NPR now will know you, of course, as our London correspondent. But as you are making very clear, you know China intimately, having spent time there in the 90s, uh, having spent time there under President Xi's era as well. How do those two Chinas compare? Are they two different Chinas? Uh, they're two very different Chinas, and, and there's a lot to talk about here, but I'll just focus on freedom and openness. I'll give you an example. In 97, I actually met Zhang at a press conference. He approached me afterwards to finish answering a question and practice his English. This is sort of unthinkable in Xi's era. I mean, he his government kicks out foreign reporters. He's referred to them as full-bellied foreigners who have nothing better to do than criticize China. Another example, in 1998, Jiang and President Bill Clinton, they debated the Tiananmen Square crackdown on live TV in China. I covered it. This was unprecedented. Here's what President Clinton said at the time. We still disagree about the meaning of what happened then. I believe, and the American people believe, that the use of force and the tragic loss of life was wrong. But you know, Jiang engaged and he defended the decision. Here's what he said. The Chinese people have long drawn a historical conclusion with regard to the political disturbances in 1989, had the Chinese government not taken the resolute measures, then we could not have enjoyed the stability that we are enjoying today. And again, Mary Louise, this is the sort of thing, a, a public debate on a very sensitive political subject you would never see in Xi Jinping's China. That is NPR London correspondent and resident China expert Frank Lankford. Thank you, Frank. Great to talk, Mary Louise. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, 
Top House and Senate leaders bestowed Congress's highest honor on law enforcement officers today, who defended the Capitol building nearly two years ago, fending off pro-Trump supporters in a brutal attack. That violent assault was aimed at trying to stop Congress from declaring Joe Biden as winner of the 2020 presidential election. Here's House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So on behalf of the United States Congress and the American people, it is my honor to present the Congressional Gold Medal to the United States Capitol Police, the Metropolitan Police, and every hero of January 6th from every agent that responded that day. Meanwhile, the House Select Committee is considering issuing criminal referrals to the Justice Department as it wraps up its probe. No word yet on who the targets might be or whether former President Trump is among them. Russian officials report another drone attack on a Russian military airfield. NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow. It's the third such incident in the past two days. The strike occurred at an airfield in the Russian region of Kursk along Ukraine's border. Online witness video showed dark plumes of smoke rising above an airfield in the pre-dawn hours. The region's governor said an oil tanker had caught fire but insisted there were no casualties. The incident came a day after Russia accused Ukraine of carrying out drone attacks on two air bases that housed strategic long-range bombers. One of the strikes hit little more than 100 miles from Moscow, killing at least three servicemen. The Kremlin spokesman says Russian President Vladimir Putin has convened his Security Council to discuss, quote, domestic security. Ukraine has not directly claimed responsibility, but suggested past explosions were karma for Russian aggression. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street. The Dow is down about 1 percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Nearly one month after she was elected governor, Maura Healey has met with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. The two gathered today to talk about the relationship between the city and the state after Healey is sworn in. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. Healy and Wu fielded a few questions from reporters but were long on compliments and short on specifics. Wu says she wants to make sure Healy's administration is successful and looks forward to the partnership. When asked what the state can do to help Boston deal with the opioid problem in the area known as Mass and Cass, Healy said it's a subject of ongoing discussion. And then together, we'll figure out what we need to do when it comes to housing and treatment and options. It's all about communication and it is about partnership. Healy also wouldn't commit to backing Boston's desire for rent control, saying she will leave that up to communities to decide. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. The Suffolk District Attorney will not seek to retry a man whose first-degree murder conviction was overturned earlier this year. Floyd Hamilton was convicted in the killing and robbery in 1984 in Dorchester. Earlier this year, a lower court threw out that conviction and ruled that prosecutors at the time failed to hand over evidence that would be helpful to Hamilton's defense team. District Attorney Kevin Hayden says a retrial is not in the best interest of justice. The state is suing a Salem company claiming it paid $3.4 million for N95 masks. The state says the company never delivered all of them. Attorney General Maura Healey is accusing Bedrock Group and its owners of failing to deliver 900,000 masks during the early days of COVID and instead used the money for personal expenses. 
Healy's office said in 2021 the company agreed to repay the state, but it's only made a single $100,000 payment. WBR has reached out to the company for comment. Massachusetts is ranked number two in the nation in energy efficiency. The American Council for Energy Efficient Economy issued a report today for the first time since 2020. California ranked number one. The report says the climate law signed by Governor Baker last summer is a significant step toward even further improvement. Prior to 2020, Massachusetts was ranked number one for nine straight years. Lots of clouds for the evening hours and overnight tonight. Could have some showers tonight. Temperatures about the mid-40s. Then for tomorrow, cloudy, rainy, about the mid-50s, which is where it is right now. 55 degrees in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. There are some contradictory things happening in the job market. Thousands of workers have been getting laid off at tech companies in recent months. And just last week, hundreds more were laid off in media at major players like CNN, The Washington Post, and Gannett. But overall, job numbers are strong. So what is going on here? Well, to help us answer that question is Betsy Stevenson. She's a labor economist at the University of Michigan and served in the Obama administration. Welcome. Uh, it's great to talk with you. Great to have you. Okay, so I want to start with the layoffs in the tech sector. Do you think those are indicative of a sector that is struggling right now or is there something else going on here? I do not think it's indicative of a sector that's struggling. I think it's indicative of a sector that had gangbuster growth over the last couple years and maybe got a bit ahead of its skis, thinking that that growth was going to go on at that rate, uh, sort of unstoppable rate, and maybe overhired in, in some areas. We've got sectors that have been slower to recover like leisure and hospitality or education and health services. So I think you want to think of this as a story of two parts of the economy. One part that recovered very fast out of the pandemic and maybe got a little bit ahead of itself and it's time to pause. Mm -hmm. And then we've got other parts of the economy that were very slow to recover. And we saw real stagnation in any kind of sectors that involved human to human contact. Well, when it comes to sectors that are still adding jobs at a pretty healthy pace, what specific sectors are we talking about that are still trying to fill positions? The two big buckets, it's leisure and hospitality and education and health. Okay. And that's that's what made up two-thirds of the job growth that we saw last month, that we saw the previous month. Um, these It's not surprising for those sectors to have such strong growth. That's what they were doing prior to the pandemic, but they were very slow to come out. You know, we're still missing nearly a million workers in leisure and hospitality. Mm. And you want to drill down into occupations. We all know about the nurse shortage. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting to me that at the same time 
we're seeing a lot of news stories about, oh, look at these layoffs at, you know, at CNN, or let's look at these layoffs in the tech sector. This is happening in the same few weeks that we've got a nurse calling 911 in an emergency room because she can't handle the patients. Yeah. Okay, well, since we always love asking economists crystal ball questions, how do you see this all playing out as you look ahead into 2023? You know, I'm an optimist, <laughs> and and I think that what we are learning is everything the government did to support workers during the pandemic, even conceding that that might have contributed somewhat to the inflation we're experiencing, I think still ultimately left us with a stronger economy because people have gone back to work. And I think we're going to continue to see very high rates of employment. I think we're still going to continue to see very low uh, rates of unemployment, even if they go up a little bit. And I think we're going to see some continued adjustment, probably away from the goods producing sector and towards the service sector as we bring back healthcare workers, <laughs> restaurant workers, hotel workers. Well, listening to you is actually mildly reassuring. That is Betsy Stevenson. She's a labor economist at the University of Michigan and served in the Obama administration. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's nice talking with you. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College's online graduate certificate in school leadership, a principal prep program. Apply now for January at williamjames.edu. Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. And the Lyric Stage, presenting The Play That Goes Wrong, part Monty Python, part Sherlock Holmes, all mayhem. Now through December 18th. Tickets at lyricstage.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins, and just for a couple of minutes, I'm in the studio with Anthony Brooks and Amory Sievertson, and I'm joined by these heavy hitters because we have an important update in our fund drive. We are transparent in our fundraising and in our fundraising needs and in the progress, and right now, I have to tell you, we need to make more progress. And so we are here to invite you, if you haven't yet, to please pledge your support for WBUR because you listen to the station. And if you don't know, let me tell you that you, in aggregate, our listeners, make up the bulk of our budget. So please, if you haven't called yet, this fundraiser is over at the end of the day tomorrow. We really need to hear from you. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Emery? Yeah, you know what WBUR does for you. You know the value that it adds to your life. And now we're asking, what can you do for WBUR right now when we are falling so short of this goal? And, and it matters that we close this gap. It matters that we meet this goal because we only ask for the money that it takes to bring you WBUR. And I don't need to tell you how hard hit everyone has been by inflation. We're feeling it too, which is why it's so important that if you can give right now, that you do, that you give for people people who maybe can't give. If you're already a sustaining member, maybe you add 5 or $10 to your monthly gift. Or if you can make a larger gift right now of $500 or $1,000 or, or $2,000, please do it right now by calling 1-800-909-9287 or giving online at WBUR.org. Again, we are considerably behind where we need to be, but the good news is that you can help us get where we need to be before this fundraiser ends tomorrow. It's in your hands. That's the important thing to keep in mind. 
Uh, we can't do it without you, so don't sit this one out. The stakes are too high. We rely on you for our largest share of funding for the programs you depend on. So if you haven't had time to make a contribution, now is the perfect time to do it because time is running out, and we need to help you. Uh, we need you to help us bring this fundraiser to a successful conclusion. So give what you can. Like Amory said, $10, $20, $30 a month. If you can do more, great. If you can go higher, fantastic. It's Now is the time to do it. But think what WBUR and NPR mean to you, and then join the community of listeners who support it by giving us a call at 1-800-909-9287. You can also do it online at WBUR.org. And there are thousands of people who have already called in. We are so appreciative of that. Thank you, and thank you for not waiting until the last minute, because uh, we all have enough furrows in our brow right now, and we really need to make our total goal of $800,000 in this fund drive. There is no fat in this. We uh, raise the money that we absolutely need to be prepared for the news in the year to come, and uh, and that's what we need to raise by tomorrow, $800,000 total. And I hope, because right now we are lagging behind a bit, that you will do your part. Name what stories, what the reporters you listen to, the programs that you listen to mean to you. Whatever you go to online, if you've gone to a city space event, put a dollar value on that. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Lisa and Anthony, we've all been part of a group project where someone didn't pull their weight, right? There's nothing worse than someone not pitching in when they are able to pitch in. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that this is your moment. You know, you are powerful. You are important to this mission of, of you know, publicly available journalism, fact-based, independent journalism. We, we want to protect that. We're asking you to help protect that with your gift. You're going to hear exactly where your dollars go because you listen to All Things Considered. You're listening right now. Maybe you listen every single night. You know, we're a part of your life. We're asking you to, to make us a part of your budget right now when it when it's just too important to sit it out. So call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. It really is too important to sit out because we do rely on you for the largest share of our funding. So we need you to call that number right away. We've heard from listeners who've given us some nice testimonials on this subject. Here's one. I listen to WBUR daily and understand that not everyone is able to give today due to financial reasons. I'm able to give today, so I wanted to step up. Love That's it. what we're asking you to do. Step up, join the community of public radio listeners, and help us conclude this fundraiser successfully tomorrow. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Another listener said NPR is a welcome lifeboat of accurate information and an ocean of disinformation. So you decide what you appreciate about WBUR. It's independence, it's accuracy, it's integrity. We think that's why you listen. What is it worth to you? 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program at Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 23rd. Semesteroff.com. When former NFL star Deion Sanders first broke into coaching college football, he made what seemed like an unusual choice. He took a coaching job at Jackson State University, a lower division team with a losing record in the decade before Sanders. This year, though, JSU came away with a 12-0 record, and that winning streak has brought a national spotlight to HBCU athletics. 
But next year, things will be different. In coaching, you get elevated or you get terminated. Ain't no other way. That's what Sanders told his players at Jackson State upon taking the head coaching job at the University of Colorado, a school in one of the top five conferences for college football. L.A. Times sports culture critic Tyler Tynes joins us now. Hey there. What's happening? Hey, so to start, if you could, just give us your gut reaction when you heard the news that Sanders was leaving Jackson State for Colorado. I think on his face, it's not that big of a deal, right? You know, man takes a job, gets a better job in some respects, and he gets a big pay raise. But when you're a head coach at an HBCU, it comes with sometimes a bigger commitment, right? It's not only to these players, it's to this community, to the teachers, and to the fans that go back decades to our traditions and everything else. And so when you leave Jackson State, especially after you sold a very specific dream, it's going to come with a fervor like no other. So for people who don't follow college football as closely as you and I do, talk about what that dream is that Deion Sanders, that Coach Prime, sold to this school. What what did he give them? He gave them a dream like any coach would. He said that he that God brought him to Jackson State to revive HBCU football. And listen, depending on how you think about football, Deion Sanders made good on his dream. ESPN came down, the whole world watched college football in the South in a way they hadn't in many years. But anytime a college football coach leaves an HBCU, particularly for a PWI, a predominantly white institution, mm -hmm, it's going to ruffle a few feathers. In the days since Deion Sanders announced that he was leaving Jackson State for Colorado, there's been some people who have been critical of him for turning his back on HBCUs, they've suggested, perhaps even turning his back on black people. Is that a fair criticism to you? I think any time we run the risk of calling a man a sellout before we actually get there, it gets dangerous. We don't really know what Dion's motivations are yet, though in the past, Dion's motivations have been Dion. And so when the idea is that you've gone to a historically Black college to sell a dream of prosperity and bringing them back to glory, I think it might be fair criticism to think he's done something wrong, especially in the way that he left Jackson State, in the way that he's talked to both his new players and his old players. There's fair game on Dion Sanders all around. Whether he sold out Black people or not, I think is a stretch just too far. You've documented a time when the best Black players in the sport would sometimes opt to play for the best Black coaches at HBCUs, but the college football landscape has changed since then. What do you think would need to happen for HBCUs to retain national-level talent today? We'd have to have a new sport. I would love nothing more than for every HBCU in the world to be able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the best PWIs, the best Power Fives in the country. But the reality is that between certain legalese in our country and also certain roadblocks when it comes to football, our HBCUs have been stripped of their power. And that power is not coming back in most cases. Though we do think that a lot of these recruits could and should choose HBCUs over some other schools, I think it's wrong sometimes to ask teenagers to make big decisions like that. Black players are now the majority of top-level college football players, and they're often the superstars who show up on ESPN no matter what school they're playing for. But black head coaches, those are far more rare in college football, let alone the NFL. So do you think um, Deion Sanders hiring opens any doors there? Anytime a black coach can get a head coaching job at a predominantly white university, it's a very, very, very big step, one way or the other. I don't know what Dion's hiring is going to do in terms of the ripples and effects for college football. I hope it means that more Black folks get hired at the minimum. Tyler Tynes is a sports culture critic for the Los Angeles Times. Tyler, thank you. Appreciate you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
More than 30,000 families in Los Angeles County could face eviction by the end of the year as pandemic housing protections expire. NPR's Danielle Kay reports. In L.A. County, tenant protections that have kept families housed throughout the pandemic are set to end on December 31st. Researchers say the results will likely be devastating for low-income families in the country's largest county, where at least 69,000 people are already experiencing homelessness. What L.A is going to deal with is that they're going to see the highest flood of evictions and potentially ex, you know, exacerbated homelessness on top of the conditions that they already had. Tim Thomas is the director at UC Berkeley's Eviction Research Network. As these moratoria and rental assistance end, we're seeing across the country a lot of cities have reached historical averages of eviction by August of this year and are actually surpassing the historical average. In the last decade, there were about 40 to 50,000 evictions per year in L.A. County. But at the height of the pandemic, that dropped by more than half to just 13,000 a year. That's largely thanks to pandemic tenant protections like rental assistance and eviction moratoria, says UCLA researcher Kyle Nelson. Now those are expiring, and Nelson says evictions are skyrocketing. As each tenant protection is peeled off, we see a corresponding increase in the number of evictions. Court records show that monthly filings are now on par with pre-pandemic numbers. My hunch is is that when we get the quarterly data for the end of 2022, we're going to start to see numbers returning to 2015-2016 levels in which there were well over 55,000 evictions being filed. Among those facing eviction is Marta Escudero. She works full-time and is a single mom of two daughters ages 10 and 13. On a sunny Sunday morning, Mesli, her youngest, plays piano in the family's garage, where Escudero runs a homeschooling collective. The three of them have been living here in East L.A. since 2020 through a city-run transitional housing program. They were couch surfing before they moved in. All these places are really our community and my support system as a single mom. But the neighborhood ties Escudero has created here could soon be ruptured. Her two-year agreement with the L.A. Housing Authority expired in October. Then she got a notice to vacate the property. The Housing Authority is trying to find other permanent housing options for families who are being transitioned out of this temporary program. But Escudero says she risks losing the safety net she's created during the pandemic. The housing options they're giving me are outside my area of support and outside my daughter's school, which she just started and is barely getting some stability and balance in her life. Her oldest daughter, Victoria, is in eighth grade. She and her younger sister host their own podcast. They call it The Sister Show. We talk about, like, everything going on, especially in the city, like, how there's so much unhealthy people. Just having a place where, like, you could just feel what you're feeling and no one will, like, really, no one could really say anything about it. Everyone in this whole entire world should have that. Victoria says couch surfing was stressful. She didn't have the space to just be a kid. She hopes she and her sister will be able to stay put where they are. I'm kind of nervous because, like, we got to stay here for a long time, so I have a little bit of hope. I'm, like, more nervous when it comes to that. The Escudero family plans to challenge their eviction in court, but in the meantime, they're making the most of the community they've built during the pandemic, hoping it'll last. Danielle Kay, NPR News, Los Angeles. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. We're here just for a few minutes with Amory Sievertson and Anthony Brooks to tell you that we are trying to make up for some lost ground because we are behind in this end-of-year fund drive. So right now, we hope that what you'll think about is what WBUR means to you, how often you listen to the station, how often you go to WBUR.org, because we know we have thousands of people who listen, who read what we have to offer, see our slideshows, our videos at WBUR.org, who maybe attend city space events and have never given a donation to WBUR. This is the time to do it because we are behind in the fun drive and we rely on you. And we hope you know that it's not commercial dollars that are pouring into WBUR. It is individual calls. So if you have yet to make a pledge, please do it. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Amory? You know, I'll start by saying I really have no business making sports analogies, but you know when the team is down and and you really need a boost and you pull someone off of the sideline, someone who's been sitting on the bench, and you pull them in and they turn the tides. And they they add the the energy, they add, uh, you know, the spirit. This is why we brought you in here. Exactly, I know. (laughs) Get off the bench and get in here. That's right. Well, I'm talking to you out there listening right now who's been sitting on the bench thinking that everyone else is going to take care of this. Everyone else is going to give the money that WBUR needs. Well, I'm just going to sit here and keep listening without donating. No, if you can give right now, we need you. We need you big time to, to pull us through across the finish line, over the goalpost, all the sports metaphors that, that I should put to bed right now. But please, please, it's too important right now. I am asking you to protect the journalism of my colleagues for you and for this whole community that counts on it by calling one 1-800-909-9287 or giving as generously as you can at WBUR.org. Yeah, it's really important that we hear from you right now because this fundraiser is going to end tomorrow evening at about this time, whether or not we raise the money that we need. If we don't raise the money, that kind of puts us in a bit of a pickle uh, for the rest of the year. So you can help us. And by the way, I want to say I have confidence, Amory and Lisa, in our listeners because they always come through. But it is something we can't take for granted. And that's why we have to come on the air and remind you that this is the time to come through in a big way. As Amory said, get off the bench and put the puck in the net and all (laughs) kinds of other words (laughs) that have to do with sports. (laughs) But do it right now by calling 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. You know, another um, analogy, and that is uh, dating apps, because very often on dating apps now people are saying, you know, one of the things I love is NPR, WBUR, Avid Listener, etc. I think we should raise that standard or maybe ask anybody who's on a dating app to raise the standard to say, supporter, have given money to NPR or WBUR because that's really what we're looking for. We're looking for you to pledge just what you can afford. We're not trying to to break your budget at all, but just know that we're not here if you're not there for us financially. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Give back to the station that maybe made you look better on your dating profile, (laughs) got you that date, got you in the relationship that led to a happily ever after. (laughs) But seriously, you know, this is a tough time for 
a lot of people and not everyone can give right now. So if you are in a position to give, please, please be there for us. And I, too, have faith in our listeners because everything that you hear on WBUR, every story, you know, every every reporter who comes in and, and, and tells you what you need to know and helps you make sense of it. All of that work has been paid for by other listeners who stepped up. So. Why wait? Why sit this one out when you could be a part of that community that makes WBUR possible? 1-800-909-9287. That's the phone number. You can do it online in two minutes, but do it now. When you make that call or when you go online, you really are supporting our belief, your belief, that independent journalism has a critical role in our lives, especially right now with lots of local news organizations taking hits, local newspapers shutting down. <clears throat> our communities really depend on this kind of journalism. It's, it's, it's one of the fibers of a healthy democracy, and that's what we're asking you to support. We are really fueled more than anything by the support of listeners like you who want to make a meaningful difference and really um, help build this community of public radio listeners and strong public radio houses of journalism. So now is the time to join them. Make your tax-deductible year-end contribution, whether it's $10 a month, $20 a month, $30 a month, whatever you can afford. Give us a call at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And we know there are folks out there who can make a gift of $1,000, in some cases $5,000. If that suits your budget, please, it suits us. If a, a pledge of $5 a month, $10 a month is something you can do, please make that phone call at 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you again. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features presenting Spoiler Alert, starring Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, and Sally Field. Based on the memoir, his life story became a love story, directed by Michael Showalter, in select theaters everywhere Friday. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks Dayquil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vix.com. And from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at duckduckgo.com. This is NPR. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The suspect in the deadly shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs is now facing more than 300 charges after a court appearance today. Colorado Public Radio's Dan Boyce says they include hate crime allegations. In Colorado, the term used is bias-motivated crimes. Anderson Lee Aldrich also faces multiple charges of first-degree murder, attempted murder, assault with a deadly weapon, and many others. District Attorney Michael Allen is prosecuting the case. We're not going to tolerate actions against community members based on their sexual identity. Members of that community have been harassed, intimidated, and abused for too long. Five people were killed in the shooting on November 19th. The next court date is scheduled for late February. 
For NPR News, I'm Dan Boyce in Colorado Springs. It's election day in Georgia again as a Senate runoff is underway between Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker. Comes after neither candidate was able to earn a majority of the vote in November's general election. Benjamin Payne of Georgia Public Broadcasting reports. Savannah's Chatham County is Georgia's most populous outside of the Atlanta area. It's also a Democratic stronghold, as Warnock won Chatham in the general election by 20 percentage points over Walker. Sandra Jackson voted at a senior citizen center for Warnock, citing the Democratic senator's support for abortion rights. I'm 66. I'm not having any babies, but I have grandbabies. And to think that they couldn't do what they want to with their own body, that, that really bothers me. Last week's early voting period in Georgia saw many long lines and wait times, some over two hours. But today, Jackson says there was no line at all when she cast her ballot. For NPR News, I'm Benjamin Payne in Savannah. The business organization of former President Donald Trump has been convicted of tax fraud charges in a scheme by top executives to avoid paying personal income taxes. New York jury finding the Trump Corporation and a payroll company controlled by Trump guilty of 17 counts. Trump himself was not on trial. The nation's trade deficit widened in October. NPR's Scott Horsley reports on the latest figures from the Commerce Department. The nation's trade gap grew to $78.2 billion in October, $4 billion more than the month before. Imports were up during the month, while exports were down. Exports have been hampered by the strong dollar, which makes U.S. products more expensive for customers in other countries. Crude oil prices declined as a new price cap on Russian oil exports takes effect. Western insurance companies say they won't cover tankers carrying Russian crude if the oil sells for more than $60 a barrel. U.S. gasoline prices continue to fall. AAA reports the average price of the pump is now $3.38 a gallon. That's down about 14 cents in the last week and more than 40 cents lower than a month ago. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Dow dropped 350 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Charlie Baker is not waiting for the state legislature to take action on help managing what he calls a humanitarian crisis that involves emergency shelter partly fueled by a recent influx of migrants to Massachusetts. A supplemental budget filed by the governor last month included money for the crisis, but lawmakers have yet to act on it. So Baker's office said today it will tap into existing funds to expand emergency shelter capacity in the state and launch a new migrant intake center expected to open later this month in Devons. The state is making nearly $169 million in federal funds available to small businesses and entrepreneurs to use as loans and seed money. The money is designed to promote the growth of smaller employers. There will be a special focus on helping businesses run by people from underrepresented or disadvantaged backgrounds. And the downtown Boston Business Improvement District has called on property owners to create a memorable holiday experience in their lobbies. Visitors can go to 11 of the neighborhood's buildings and vote on which one is their favorite. The contest runs through next Friday. In the forecast, more clouds overnight tonight. Temperatures not too chilly, around the mid-40s. And then for tomorrow, lots of clouds, often on showers during the day. Highs in the mid-50s. Sunshine should return on Thursday. 55 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. 
Coming up next, former President Donald Trump's company has been convicted of tax fraud. More on that story in just a couple of minutes, but it is the kind of story that we know you rely on WBUR to tell you with accuracy and uh, and tell you right away as soon as the news breaks. And the only way we can have reporters who are doing that is with your funds. And speaking of that, right now we are wrapping up our end of the year fund drive as I'm losing my voice. And we are telling you that we have uh, a lot of money left to raise. We have fallen significantly behind where we need to be to meet our goal by the end of the fundraiser tomorrow. So please help us right now get caught up. Give at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I'm in the studio with Anthony Brooks and Amory Sievertson. Yeah, and you know, this is the time of year where we often make lists of stuff that we get for other people. But, you know, we're here to say right now, what if your money went elsewhere? What if it went to powering public fact-based journalism that is available to everyone out there? What if you diverted just some small portion of your stuff fund and used it to bring more of that into the world? Less stuff and more truth, more information, more journalism that combats the disinformation that we have out there, combats the noise and provides a safe refuge for you where you know that every time you turn on WBUR, you're hearing the truth. You're hearing something that you're going to learn from that's going to inspire you. We're asking you right now to protect that. Protect that when we have fallen significantly behind. Pick us up, pitch in, whether it's $10 a month, if that's what's right for your budget, or $5,000 right now. Whatever you can do, you can help lift us up by calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org. This is such an important time to support WBUR with local journalism <clears throat> outlets being cut, uh, small time uh, hometown newspapers are being shut down, while democracy literally under attack in some parts of the country. Lots of us depend more than ever on WBUR and public radio for thoughtful, unbiased journalism. But this is an expensive business, and that's why we come to you periodically <clears throat> to ask you to help pay for it. But as Amory and Lisa said, we are behind in this fundraiser. So we're asking you to step it up a little bit. If you're if you're if you've been thinking about putting off making the call or sitting this one out, we just want to urge you to make that call right now, because now is when we need your help. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. So please make the phone call right now. Thank you if you have, by the way, if you haven't. Uh, this is making our budget a serious business for us. And we hope then by extension it is for you as well. You've chosen to listen to WBUR, a station that has listener contributions at the core of its budget. So please call now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy, preparing students through innovation, entrepreneurship, and human-centered design. Tour day, December 10th, neiacademy.org. And the ICA, now offering gift memberships. Give a year of art and inspiration while also providing vital support to the museum. ICABoston.org. On a Tuesday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The Trump Organization has been found guilty of tax fraud in a long-running scheme that continued into the time that Donald Trump was in the White House. A jury in New York found the former president's company guilty on all counts. Here's Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg speaking with reporters. It underscores that in Manhattan, we have one standard of justice for all. 
NPR's Andrea Bernstein joins us now from New York. Hey, Andrea. Hey, Elsa. Hey. Okay, so there were like 17 counts total, right? Can, can you tell us more about what the jury found here? 17 for two corporate entities. This trial started on Halloween, and there were long presentations of business records, but the verdict came pretty swiftly after just a day and a half of what seemed to be pretty careful deliberation. Trump's company had been charged with participating in a long-running scheme to cheat taxpayers, including while Trump was president. Now, to be clear, Trump himself was not charged, and his chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, already pleaded guilty. But the question was, did Weisselberg do it in behalf of the Trump Corporation and the Trump Payroll Corporation, the other corporate entity. And just before four o'clock, the jury sent a note saying we have a verdict. The forewoman stood up and the clerk said, what say you to each count? Scheme to defraud, conspiracy in the fourth degree, falsifying business records, guilty, 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 17 times. 17 times. Okay, so Weisselberg benefited by avoiding income taxes on these perks that he got, but the jury decided that the Trump organization benefited too. Can you explain that part of this? Yeah, so what we learned during the trial was the detail of how Alan Weisselberg and other top executives got uncompensated benefits like Mercedes-Benz leases, luxury apartments, even tuition for Weisselberg's grandchildren, which Donald Trump, by the way, signed those checks personally. All of this was happening by the top executives of the company. More than that, this was a scheme that was carried out by the highest level executives. So what the jury found is there's no separation there between the highest level executives and the company itself. So that was why the jury found the company criminally liable. Got it. Okay. So if it is criminally liable, is anybody going to prison at this point? So Weisselberg is going to prison. Okay. He pleaded guilty uh, last summer and will be serving five months uh, in jail. But as for the Trump company, it can only pay a fine. There's actually no person on trial here, uh, up to $1.6 million. However, there are other implications. There can be difficulties getting loans and doing business. And most significantly, Donald Trump and or his company have been investigated over and over and over again, going back for decades. This is the first time his company has been charged, tried, and convicted of a crime. Interesting. Okay, well, Donald Trump, of course, is once again candidate Trump. And I know that he faces at least one other legal case in New York. And, you know, he's also under legal scrutiny elsewhere, including for efforts to overturn the 2020 election. What do you think today's verdict means for him personally? So he will have to deal with the fact that his eponymous company is a convicted criminal. On top of that, if a company can be a criminal uh, in the sort of legal sense, but on top of that, he will have to run on his campaign with this now record of having been convicted. Up to now, he's been able to say that hasn't been the case. Mm -hmm. His lawyers say he will appeal and that they disagree with the verdict. That is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you. The seemingly endless campaign for U.S. Senate in Georgia is finally ending. Today, voters make a final decision about whether to reelect Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock or send Republican Herschel Walker to Washington. WABE's Sam Greenglass reports from Atlanta on the last days of the runoff election. With three days left in one of the country's most consequential Senate races, Herschel Walker spent his Saturday at Atlanta's futuristic-looking football stadium. The number one team in the country, the reigning national champions, the Georgia Bulldogs. 
Walker hosted a tailgate before the SEC championship game. He's embraced his stature as one of the University of Georgia's most revered players. It's helped deflect a torrent of controversies, including allegations of domestic violence. Reporters have been barred for weeks within 20 feet of the candidate, including at this tailgate. This election has become almost as much about the biographies of the two candidates as the vastly different policy positions they support. Warnock is senior pastor of the congregation Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once led. On Sunday, he carved out a few hours to preach from his pulpit in Atlanta. Pastor dropped by this morning to tell you to use your voice. I'm not going to even begin to try to tell you who to vote for. I don't care who it is. You're going to vote for somebody whose last name begins with a W. The other W, Herschel Walker, also wove some prayer into his Sunday schedule. His rally on the lot of a Chevy dealership featured a lineup of evangelical leaders and also this hype video. I'm sick and tired of people putting this country down. In the crowd is Paul Smith. He's mostly retired but still teaches part-time. And I brought me two copies of the 1980-81 Sports Illustrated, thinking he would just be nice to autograph that. Smith says he's confident Walker will be a reliable GOP vote. Warnock has agreed with Biden 90-95% of the time. We need someone to counter that. On the stump, Walker's speeches are often light on policy. He also leans on his personal story and humorous anecdotes, and often tries to evoke images of valiant patriotism. On Sunday, he told a favorite story about the defense of Fort McHenry and why afterward the Star-Spangled Banner was still there. Because you had so many people that believed in the liberties and freedoms that we have right now, that as they were dying with that dead body, they laid it against that flagpole to stand it back up. That's what we need right now. Warnock has also been telling a story about America in these final days. On Monday, he reminded a crowd at Georgia Tech how young people propelled the civil rights movement. Students who couldn't fit inside pressed their faces to the auditorium's glass windows. We need folk who are not content with things as they are, who know that while we live in a great country, we can always make it greater. In the runoff, Warnock has appealed to Republican voters hesitant about Walker. But especially in the final days, he's also pushing to boost turnout among young and minority voters. Sophomore Alexis Jones has a seat in the front row for Warnock's speech. He made history. Obviously, he's the first black senator in Georgia, which means so much. And it, I was so proud in 2020 during my senior year when he won. She says this election will also make a statement about Georgia's future. The stakes are high, I think, for the country as a whole and for the state of Georgia. It will continue to send the message that young voices still do matter. Jones cast her ballot on Friday. At this point, all that's left is to wait. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Dow fell about 1% today, or 351 points, to close at 33,596. S&P and Nasdaq followed suit. The S&P closed lower for a fourth straight day. 
down nearly 1.5% to end the day at 39.41. The Nasdaq fell 2% to close at 11,015. We got details coming up on Marketplace. It starts at 6.30. In the forecast, lots of clouds overnight tonight. Should be right about 47 degrees. A few showers around, especially after 2 a.m. And then for tomorrow, rainy, foggy, relatively mild, though, in the mid-50s. 55 degrees now in Boston at 5.18. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig. This is WBUR. We're going to be hearing so many fantastic stories coming up, really interesting stories coming up uh, from uh, sports to, um, geez, let me look at the evictions to uh, the Trump, more on the Trump verdict. In fact, we're going to be hearing a Kirstie Alley remembrance. All of this is what you get when you listen to WBUR 24-7. Please support it right now because... We need to make up some lost ground. We are behind in this fund drive. It's over tomorrow at the end of the day, and we can't afford, frankly and literally, to not make our goal of a total of $800,000. We are well short of that right now. So we're asking for you to make your pledge, if you have not as yet, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins. With me is Anthony Brooks and Amory Sievertson. Yeah, and journalism that, that cannot sustain itself, we know that there are real consequences. You know, if, if we can't sustain everything that WBUR brings to you, uh, then, you know, we don't know what will happen. We, we I don't need to tell you about the headlines of all of the cuts that we've seen to local journalism and national journalism even, because it takes money and resources to bring you the truth. And we are dogged about that. And, you know, we have reporters here like Anthony Brooks and Lisa Mullins who have decades of experience and, and you know, tell stories in ways that no one else can. You know what you get from WBUR. You've been listening to it maybe for several hours today already, and we're asking you right now to protect it because we don't want to find out what happens when we don't. And we we need you to do your part. Everybody needs you to do your part. The listeners that can give, the listeners that can't give but still rely on WBUR as a resource, protect that resource right now with 10 or $15 a month, with, you know, $50 a month if you can do it with $5,000 right now, if you can do it, we have to cross this finish line and we can't do it without you. 1-800-909-9287 is the phone number or go to WBUR.org. And keep in mind what you are paying for. We're keeping you up to date. In less than a couple of hours, polls in Georgia are going to close and we're going to start bringing you results of that key Senate race. In other news today, Donald Trump's company was found guilty of felony tax evasion. The January 6th committee will make uh, criminal referrals uh, to the Department of, uh, of Justice. These are all hugely consequential and important stories. We're on them all the time, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. But to do that kind of coverage, to bring you that kind of coverage, costs a lot of money. And that's why we're coming to you right now, as we do periodically, <clears throat> to ask you to help pay for it. And to keep in mind that we are behind and we want to finish this fundraiser tomorrow strong and we can do it with your help. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And as Emory Sievertson said, public radio journalism has to be able to support itself. So everyone who can give, we hope you will give right now so we can make our budget because we are indeed behind. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thanks again. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The World Cup recently concluded. No, not that World Cup. We are talking about the Parasport Bobsled World Cup. And you can be forgiven for not knowing that athletes with disabilities race bobsleds because it is not part of the Paralympics. At least not yet. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports on the international athletes who are trying to get bobsled accepted as a sport in the next Paralympic Games. Will Castillo works on his bobsled at the top of a mountain in Lake Placid, New York. We're polishing the runners to make them go faster. Any little bit of friction will slow you down. And when you're trying to race by hundreds of a second, you know, you try to go as smooth as possible. To the rhythm of sandpaper on steel, Castillo is mentally running through the curves of Lake Placid's mile-long bobsled run. It's been a long journey to this mountaintop from his second combat tour in Iraq. He was the only survivor of a bomb attack on his truck in 2007. Castillo lost his left leg, and for a while he lost direction. I wasn't doing anything with my life, to be honest with you. I was going through the transition problems. I mean, the leg never really affected me, but losing my uh, gunner and driver uh, was really my biggest injury. Castillo says he dealt with depression and substance abuse. Then, a few years after his injury, he made a connection. I was uh, getting a surgery at Walter Reed, a friend of mine, was telling me about a camp that Kim was having to get veterans on the ice. And I started to come to the camps. Kim is Kim Seavers. I'm Kim Seavers. I'm the chairman of the USA Parasliding Committee. Seavers has worked in adaptive sports for years. She was a guide for a visually impaired skier in the 2010 Paralympics. A few years later, she was applying for a VA grant. She wanted to propose a sport VA wasn't already funding. I was at the gym, and there was a guy who dropped in. He was a baloney amputee, and he had some military stuff on his prosthesis. So I started talking to him, and he said, yeah, he goes, I just went to this camp in Calgary for bobsled. Seavers lived only a couple hours from Lake Placid at the time, which has one of just three bobsled tracks in North America. At first, the management there was a little nervous about a week-long camp for disabled athletes sliding at 60-plus miles per hour. William Castillo tried skeleton first. Plenty of blood on the ice, yes. Skeleton is the one where you go face-first on your belly with a sled the size of a tea tray. I didn't really smash into the walls, and the worst ones, you know, I crashed, and the sled was behind me, and then I tried to sit on it and just try to get out of its way. But, you know, we have good medics here, and they always take care of us. There's no beginner slope in bobsled. Kim Seavers said the Lake Placid managers stuck with it, though. At the end of the week, he actually walked up to me and he was blown away. And he said, what do I have to do to make Lake Placid the, the home of Paralympic bobsledding? Except there still wasn't bobsled allowed in the Paralympics. Apart from safety concerns, to get a new sport approved, there have to be enough athletes competing at a high level around the world. To be included in the Paralympic Games... Um, you have to have races on three continents. Um, you have to have a World Cup series, and you have to have a world championship. 
and you need the same countries to come back to each qualifying event. I mean, there are there are times when we've just almost begged athletes, you know, we're, we're like, you've got to come to this race. We have to have your country. Some of the newest athletes are on the Spanish team. In the days before the World Cup, they drive up the mountain in a box truck. The plan is for a walkthrough of the Lake Placid course. As she's clinging to a strap in the bed of the truck in her wheelchair, I ask Marise Ibanez how long she's been bobsledding. Since Monday, she says, then corrects herself, no, since Tuesday. She's done other sports, and she confides that she really prefers summer, warm-weather sports. And with that, she and her Spanish teammates roll out onto the ice. Guides wearing ice cleats show the athletes down the track. They hold onto the wheelchairs with climbing ropes to keep them from sliding. And they get a tour of Lake Placid's highly technical curves and straightaways. So here, when you go up to curve three, it's going to get faster and higher. Even at zero miles an hour, this is terrifying. Steep and winding, with paint marks on the ceiling from where the sleds hit. On the ceiling at 60 miles an hour. Will Castillo says this is a mental sport. You're 20 feet up on the wall and you're sideways. And as you're coming down to the curb, everything is just closing in around you. And you got to stay on, stay on that curb as long as you can, because if you come off too soon, that pressure is going to pick you up and flip you. So you really have to be patient as you see your whole world caving in around you. You're like, OK, I know this sled's going to come through. That's just what Castillo does in his practice runs before the cup, completing the mile-long course in just over a minute. So the mental and physical challenge, the logistical and bureaucratic challenge to setting up the games, what else could get in the way? That would be geopolitics. No, didn't see that one coming. Kim Seavers says this whole World Cup was supposed to be happening at Whistler in Canada. Then just days before her flight... I think I was sitting in my living room watching a football game and uh, my WhatsApp dinged and I looked at it said Whistler's Whistler's canceled. Over the summer the International Bobsled Skeleton Federation had appointed a Russian official to the Parasports Committee but Russia's invasion of Ukraine has made it a pariah and the rest of the committee protested. By October they had all resigned and suddenly Canada couldn't host the World Cup. So I went on a massive recruiting effort uh, to get enough volunteers here to help with sled moving and figuring out all the pieces and the parts and how and if we could get them together to hold a safe race. They needed a World Cup in North America to keep alive their application to be a Paralympic sport. By good luck, Seavers had already scheduled a race at Lake Placid, so the athletes, some were already in Canada, made their way here, and they pulled it off. You know, after Whistler was canceled, they could have all packed up and gone home, but they didn't. They came here to, to participate and keep the dream alive. That dream of bobsled into the Paralympics, Seavers doesn't think it'll happen until maybe the 2030 Olympics. She's grateful that these athletes are doing this, even though they may not make those games. Will Castillo says other disabled athletes will get there if he doesn't. I'm just a kid from Queens. I, I joined right after 9-11. I never thought that God would bring me here. 
So to be able to represent my country once again on the biggest stage, that to me would be everything in the world. Games are not games. It's just to represent my country again and, and to go out there and be disciplined at something and, and achieve my own goals. Castillo took gold in his first race in the Parabobsled World Cup and silver in the second. He's currently ranked first in the world. Not bad for a kid from Queens. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, Lake Placid, New York. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Prosecutors have charged the suspect in the Club Q shooting in Colorado Springs with more than 300 charges, including murder and hate crimes. Anderson Lee Aldridge is accused of opening fire last month in the nightclub that serves the LGBTQ plus community, killing five people and injuring at least 19 others. District Attorney Michael Allen says prosecutors are now hard at work getting ready for trial. When you file 305 counts in a case, that tells the public, this community, this state, and this nation that we are taking this case as serious as we possibly can, meaning that we are going to prosecute this case to the fullest extent of the law. The murder charges carry life sentences in prison without the possibility of parole. Anderson made a second court appearance today and is being held without bail. The next hearing is set for late February. Nurses at 15 Minnesota hospitals have reached a tentative contract agreement averting a strike that was set to start this weekend. From Minnesota Public Radio, Michelle Wiley reports. The three-year deal includes wage increases and language giving nurses more of a say in staffing-level decisions. Mary Turner is president of the Minnesota Nurses Association. This is the highest raise we've had in over two decades. I think nurses are relieved that we are not going to be walking out in December before the holidays, that everyone should be relieved that it's resolved. Union members will now vote on the tentative deal. In a statement, Alina Health, which represents four of the hospitals involved, said they're pleased with the settlement. For NPR News, I'm Michelle Wiley in Minneapolis. Stocks finished lower across the board on Wall Street. Tech companies were among the big losers today as worries persist over the Fed's efforts to get inflation under control. The Dow lost 350 points, down about 1%. The tech-heavy Nasdaq dropped 225 points, down 2%. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston, Massachusetts. Congresswoman Diana Presley is applauding the Biden administration's move to extend temporary protective status to Haitian migrants until August of 2024. Gang violence, a cholera outbreak, and recent earthquakes in Haiti prompted the extension. Presley says it will save lives by preventing deportations to Haiti. Massachusetts is home to the third largest Haitian diaspora community in the country. Also in the news today, Massachusetts scored among the lowest marks in the country for highway and road safety. WBR's Amy Sokolow reports. 
An annual report released today by the Consumer and Safety Group Advocates for Highway and Auto Safety ranked all 50 states on several road safety metrics. Massachusetts is one of nine states to receive the group's lowest ranking. It fell short in part because it hasn't implemented stricter seatbelt enforcement laws. Currently, police in the state cannot pull someone over solely because they're not wearing their seatbelt. Massachusetts also lacks a law that mandates the installation of ignition interlock devices on the vehicles of people convicted of drunk driving. Those devices require drivers to pass an alcohol breath test before their cars can start. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. The Baker administration is awarding more than $11 million to organizations across Massachusetts to combat violence among young people. The bulk of the money will go to 15 agencies in specific communities, including Boston, Lawrence, Fall River, and Pittsfield. The initiative targets at-risk young people who are at higher risk for gang involvement. Pharmaceutical giant Pfizer is teaming up with the Cambridge startup Clear Creek to develop new treatments for COVID. The two companies announced today that they'll work together to develop new antiviral pills to treat the disease. Clear Creek began working on ideas for the new drug last year. Financial terms of the deal with Pfizer were not disclosed. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton, providing fully equipped BL2 lab space for biotechnology startups right next to Cambridge. Learn more at labshares.com. Cloudy skies overnight tonight, temperatures about 47 degrees, not too much lower than they are right now. And for tomorrow, lots of fog in the morning, rain off and on through the day. Should be in the mid-50s tomorrow. Sunshine should return on Thursday, maybe even Friday, too. 55 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies. At Fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. So we've gone from news headlines to a headline of our own on the fund drive. We're behind, and this fundraiser is over uh, tomorrow at uh, just past this hour, tomorrow evening. And so we need to make up ground. If you haven't given yet, we're going to ask you to give right now for everything that you hear on WBUR, be it uh, All Things Considered, a podcast like Amory's podcast, Endless Thread, all the important political reporting you hear from Anthony Brooks, and these are just the people who are in the studio with me right now. We have so many more people who are here contributing to what you listen to, what you get online, contributing to the fact that you are an edified uh, and sometimes entertained listener. So please make the call to support it. You could do a monthly pledge, $10 a month, $15 a month. You could do a one-time pledge. But please be an active participating listener by supporting us right now, one 800 909 or go to WBUR.org. That's right. We're asking you to give, but we're not telling you how much to give because that is not how public radio works. The way that we do this is we ask everyone to just do their part and only you know what the right amount is for you. You know, we want you to do what's comfortable for you, but we also want you to really take stock of how much you listen to WBUR, how much you rely on it, how much it means to you, whether we are your companion in the car 
pretty much every time you're turning on your car or, you know, just waking up in the morning and trying to make sense of the world, take stock of that right now and do your part. Maybe it's $10 a month. Maybe it's 20 or $50 a month. Maybe, as we said, we're really behind. Maybe you can help carry a lot of that weight for us and help pull us all over this finish line. And you can give something like $1,000 or $5,000 or $10,000 right now for WBUR. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And by the way, don't laugh when we hear $10,000 because we have had pledges of $10,000 and even beyond that. We know that most people can't do it. If you can, please do it now. If you can pledge $10 or $10 a month, please do that now. Yeah, it's really important that you do it right that you do it right now because we are considerably behind where we need to be to hit our goal by the end of this fundraiser tomorrow. So we're asking you to help get caught up now. And that means making a call at 1-800-909-9287 or going to wbur.org. This fundraiser is going to end tomorrow without doubt, but we can't afford to miss our goal. This, so this is when we really need you to join other members of our community and step up to make sure that WBUR has the funds we need to bring you the journalism that you rely on. So don't sit this out. Just give, a, give as generously as you can, but give as quickly as you can as well, because time is running out. Again, the number 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And think about what you've heard just in the past hour or so on All Things Considered. How often do you hear a conversation, more than just a few words, with somebody who's being evicted or about to be evicted, in this case in uh, Los Angeles because housing protections have expired? How often do you hear from an Iraq war veteran who lost his leg and then found a new passion in bobsledding as a competitor? Quill Lawrence's story there, his use of audio, taking you to Lake Placid, the training ground for the World Cup, and hopefully the Paralympics, pointing out the sledder's contact marks on the ceiling. This is how we take you to the story. Quill Lawrence, who covered Iraq, who covered Afghanistan on the ground. This is what you're paying for. This is what we're asking you to pay for right now. You name the amount. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. If you don't do it, who will? Please step up to the plate right now and thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, with seasonal exhibit All Aboard Trains at Science Park, plus 4D and Omni Theater adventures like the Polar Express. Tickets at mos.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. American Christianity is in the midst of an identity crisis. Attendance, especially among millennials and Gen Z, is in steep decline. They say traditional church services don't speak to their lives. And in response, religious leaders are scrambling to stay relevant. NPR's John Burnett reports on three churches in Knoxville, Tennessee, that are experimenting with new ways to offer meaning in people's lives. At a community garden, a small group huddles around a fire pit under the limbs of an expansive box elder tree. Church is about to start, and it's cold. God, our Father, we are just so thankful for this time that we have to share this morning. And God, we really thank you for fire um, that keeps us warm even as we sit up under this tree. We just pray that you would bless our time together. Three years ago, Pastor Chris Battle walked away from more than three decades leading Black Baptist churches and started Battlefield Farm and Gardens in Knoxville. They grow vegetables and sell them at a farmer's market. They also collect unsold produce from around the city and once a week deliver it to people in public housing. Why did he leave? 
battle, a big man with a pipe clenched and his generous smile, had noticed that more and more people were turned off by the sermons, the pitches for money, the Sunday morning formality of it all. So I said to myself, maybe we need to begin to do church differently, but what does that look like? And I didn't know until I got to the garden. The people who come to Battlefield Gardens on Sunday morning are mostly refugees from traditional religion. Battle delivers a brief sermon on the teachings of Jesus. They talk about it. Then, instead of altar calls or Holy Communion, his congregation, such as it is, tends to the 50 raised beds of kale and eggplant, string beans and squash, tomatoes and greens, as well as the chicken coop and compost pile. People, when they come to the garden, they'll have conversation with you. But you tell them you're a pastor, the conversation changes, okay? They hide their liquor. They quit cussing, you know? <laughs> I mean, everything changed. But you tell them you're a farmer, and they start telling you what color their thumb is. And I'm like, wow. Meeting people, developing relationships with people in the, in the garden, and it's not happening in the church. People are running away from the church. Indeed they are. Last year, Americans' membership in houses of worship fell below 50% for the first time since Gallup started its authoritative religion survey. In 1937, the year the Gallup poll began, seven out of 10 Americans attended church. In 2020, before the pandemic, only 47% of Americans said they belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque. It's been trending downward since 2000. Put another way, millennials and Gen Z are rejecting organized religion. Genuinely, I'm here because I want two things out of church. Kelly Siskoyas is a 27-year-old PhD candidate in English who comes to the garden on Sundays and delivers veggies. I want time to like sit down like we do on Sundays sometimes or around the fire and like pray and recenter and figure out what we're about in the world because the world is very noisy. And then I want church to be a place where you like get done with your community and for your community. Again, Pastor Chris Battle. We were trying to create this community that people who learn to love each other and ultimately love the world and transform it through collard greens <laughs> and okra. <laughs> this impulse, this urgency to do something different is being felt throughout the Christian church. Once booming evangelical churches are worried, but for liberal mainline Protestants like the Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Episcopalians, the hemorrhaging of members has become an existential question. Consider Knoxville's Marble City United Methodist Church. The stained glass windows are still there, but now the structure houses an architectural firm and the Golden Roast Coffee Shop. The church closed a couple years ago because worshipers stopped coming and tithing. Now people have returned, this time to the altar of caffeine. Honey latte? Thank you, ma'am. Y'all have a great day. Every year we close anywhere between two and five churches, every single year. Reverend Bradley Hyde is a Methodist pastor in his 25th year in the ministry. From his seat on the regional church conference in East Tennessee, he's watched the pandemic drive even more people away. I think people were already wanting to leave church and COVID gave a great opportunity for people to say goodbye. I'm not the only pastor who has noticed that, but a lot of people have just not come back. Hyde says he did focus groups among his parishioners and he heard the same thing over and over. The church needs to do a better job of connecting with the community. So now his church, Bearden United Methodist, does its version of Chris Battle's okra and collars ministry. 
They collect unsold produce from local vendors and then once a month bring it back to the church parking lot. And our community is finally getting the word that we offer high quality produce uh, that they can come and get for no cost. And it has been a game changer for connecting with our community. So just because you leave organized religion doesn't mean the hunger to connect with the divine is going to cease. Reverend Caroline Vogel is a priest and director of the Center for Spiritual Learning and Practice at the Episcopal Church of the Ascension in Knoxville. It's how we were created. We need food, we need shelter, we need clothing, and we also have to feed our souls in some way. And so I think there's this challenge of, okay, we've been doing it like this for so long, and it's just not working for people in a way that meets them in a holistic way. On this Sunday evening, it's breathing under stained glass. About 30 people, mostly folks who don't attend regular church, sit on yoga mats on the terracotta floor in Ascension's stately hushed sanctuary. Vogel and another priest in workout clothes direct these breathing exercises from the front of the church. Your human breath is infinitely connected to the divine breath so that as you breathe, you are being breathed by the holy. On other Sunday nights, they offer a Celtic service, a book group, and something called Tools of Aliveness. After breathing under stained glass, I approached Jamie Hampton, a 44-year-old Tennessee state employee. She and her husband stopped going to traditional church about six years ago because it wasn't doing anything for them. Now she comes to Ascension's Sunday night events. I was raised independent Baptist where you don't even wear pants in a church, so laying in a yoga mat in the floor was a little weird, <laughs> but wonderful. The breathing linked with feeling the Spirit is really important to me, and it just, it stays with me more than just a sermon and some hymns. Back at the fire pit at Battlefield Garden, Baptist pastor Chris Battle says he used to measure the success of a church by what he calls the BPs. Butts in pews, bucks in the plate, baptisms in the pool, and building <laughs> programs. The, the BPs, that's how you grow a church, right? <laughs> when he was senior pastor, the question used to be, how can the church change the culture? Today, it's how do we change the culture of the church? John Burnett, NPR News, Knoxville. To Capitol Hill now, where top leaders today awarded the Congressional Gold Medal to police officers who responded to the insurrection on January 6, 2021. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi presented Congress's highest honor. And in accepting this medal, you bring luster to this award, just as you bring luster to the Congress and the Constitution of the United States. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh reports on the tribute. Standing in the Capitol Rotunda, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said no matter how much time passes, January 6 still always feels like yesterday. He was on the Senate floor when an officer in his security detail whisked him away. And he grabbed me by the jacket as we ran out of the chamber. At one point, I was within 30 feet of the rioters. He recounted how officers threw themselves between lawmakers and the mob. On the day democracy faced maximum danger, these public servants responded 
with maximum valor. Tuesday, exactly 23 months after the brutal assault launched by far right-wing extremists, the police received the highest accolade lawmakers can bestow. Previous gold medal recipients include war heroes, civil rights leaders, and astronauts. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger paid tribute to those officers who died, reciting names of those who succumbed to injuries and those who died by suicide. More than 140 officers were injured. It was a day unlike any other in our nation's history. And for us, it was a day defined by chaos, courage, tragic loss, and resolve. Robert Conti, chief of D.C.'s police department, said many officers still carry the physical and emotional scars after the violent attack. The sound of metal poles and other objects striking the bodies, helmets, and shields may still ring loudly. The air still thick with bear spray and other chemicals. For many of Conti's officers, the ceremony was their first time back to the Capitol. As they sat in the room that was the scene of violence, the emotions were still raw. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell praised officers who ran toward the danger that day. And when an unhinged mob tried to come between the Congress and our constitutional duty, the Capitol Police fought to defend not just this institution, but our system of self-government. Tuesday's event was somber, but not free of politics. Since the attack, some Republicans have downplayed the violence. Most have refused to publicly fault President Trump for his role in inciting the mob. Family members of an officer who died greeted Pelosi and Schumer, but declined to shake hands with McConnell or the top House Republican, Kevin McCarthy. The attack also exposed communications and training failures within those agencies who responded. In an interview with NPR ahead of the ceremony, Manger said those issues have largely been fixed, but he's still worried about ongoing threats. I do least lose some sleep over the fact that some of these extremist groups are still active. And, um, uh, of course, as, as we learn, uh, you know, extremist groups learn as well. The House committee investigating the attack is expected to release its report this month. The panel wants to make sure the police won't have to put their lives on the line again to protect democracy. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, Washington. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Downtown Crossing Boston with shopping, theater, fine dining, a holiday marketplace, and more. The magic of the season is here. It's time to celebrate. DowntownBoston.org. This is 90.9 WBUR, a very brief update on our fund drive. We have now 
a lot of money that we still need to raise because we are behind. And uh, this fundraiser is ending tomorrow, whether we're behind or not. So we hope that you will make your phone call right now, and especially now because we have a dollar-for-dollar match uh, just until 6 o'clock tonight. So that's until seven minutes from now. We don't want to lose uh, uh, any money. I mean, so the money is on the table thanks to one generous listener. Emery Sievertson will tell us more. Emery. It's a real mouthful. That's right. One generous listener has stepped up to encourage you to step up. They are going to match your contributions dollar for dollar up to $15,000. So once we hit that $15,000, that's excellent. Thank you, whoever you are, because we don't know. (laughs) Yes. See, people pitch in. People do what they can do, and they're hoping that you will do what you can do. So if you can give $10 a month to WBUR right now, for example, they're going to make that $20 a month to WBUR. If you can give $500 dollars to WBUR, they're going to make it $1,000. If you can give $5,000, they're going to make it $10,000 just because you pitched in right now when we really need your help. Uh, just before 6 o'clock, you can get this dollar-for-dollar dollar match. And isn't that smart? Why wouldn't you want your money to go twice as far in anything you do? It can happen right now when you call one 800-909-9287. Go to WBUR.org. Give as generously as you can and have the satisfaction of knowing that your money will be doubled. Again, we are considerably behind where we need to be, but the good news is that you can help us make up the difference before the fundraiser ends tomorrow night. This is a really important time to support WBUR with local journalism under financial strain, with democracy itself under attack. We rely more than ever on public radio and WBUR for unbiased and uh, uh, dispassionate uh, journalism to get you through your day. So the stakes are high, and we're asking you not to sit this fundraiser out uh, before it ends tomorrow. A small contribution, if you can do $5, $10, $20 a month, makes a huge difference difference. The point is, is to join this effort. If everybody got off the bench and got involved in this uh, effort, we would close out this fundraiser. We will close out this fundraiser successfully, but not without your help. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We know that uh, that uh, every gift makes a difference. Smaller gifts can make a big difference. Bigger gifts can make a big difference as well. We really want to thank this person who I think um, those of us who are not on the air, some people know, well, Definitely. Some people know who the generous listener is. We have not been told, but thank you. And we hope that will motivate those of you who are in a position to give and and give small gifts, give larger gifts if you can, to give right now. We do not want to leave any of this $15,000 on the table, and we only have about five minutes left in which to raise it, probably about four and a half minutes now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. That's right. We can't do this without you. And you know what? Frankly, we don't want to do this without you. We want to know that you believe in WBUR. We know that you listen to it. We know that you count on it. And I know that it matters to you how you spend your dollars. It matters to you that you support things you believe in, organizations that do work that you rely on, that you appreciate, that you want everyone to have access to. Making a contribution to WBUR is an investment. It's an investment in the truth and in giving everyone access to 
to that truth. So right now, in just the next ooh, three minutes or so, your money can go twice as far to protect that. It's, it's an investment to protect this kind of fact-based journalism that spreads truth and, and, and analysis and understanding and humanity and combats the kind of disinformation that is deteriorating the fabric of our democracy. Your money will be doubled. $10 a month becomes $20. $50 a month becomes $100 a month. $5,000 for WBUR right now becomes $10,000. We need you in any amount. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. We really do need you and time is running out because this fundraiser is going to end tomorrow night whether or not we reach our goal. Unfortunately right now we are behind in um, reaching that goal but we can make up the difference if you get off the bench right now and jump into this game. Join this community of other WBUR listeners who have made contributions, $10, $20, $30 a month. It's really important. We've been taking in some uh, listener testimonials when um, we got this from a listener just recently. Public radio is my go-to source for everything that matters in my life, everything that keeps me well-informed and up-to-date about health, politics, the arts, education, world events, and especially honesty and truth. I need you to be there for us every day. We appreciate that, and we need you, the listener, to be with us every day, or right now specifically, uh, to make a contribution, a monthly contribution, whatever you can afford, $10, $20, $30 a month. Take advantage of this uh, match that's on the table right now for the next little while. Anything you give is going to be double. That'll be a, a double impact for WBUR. So give us a call at 1-800-909-9287, or you can do it online. It only takes about 90 seconds at WBUR.org. And we have about 1 minute 45 seconds left for you to take advantage of this generous gift from a listener who put up $15,000 saying, I will match everything that is given by listeners right now. Again, it's just for about a uh, minute and a half now for uh, up to $15,000. This is a great opportunity for you if you haven't called yet. Why wouldn't you want to give to have your donation doubled? Why wouldn't you want to give to support the station that you listen to, WBUR, when you know that we rely on you for the majority of our operating budget? It's not government funds. Government adds up to 3.7 percent of our funding. We rely on you, our listeners. The number, once again, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Everything that you hear on WBUR was made possible because of people just like you who picked up the phone when we needed them to and pitched in and did their part. Maybe it's $10 a month. Maybe it's $100. Maybe it's $1,000. Maybe it's $10,000 that you can give to WBUR right now. Support the journalism. Give future generations the gift that is public fact-based journalism by calling 1-800-909-9287, going to WBUR.org, and having your contribution matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features presenting Spoiler Alert, starring Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, and Sally Field. Based on the memoir, his life story became a love story. Directed by Michael Showalter in select theaters everywhere Friday. And from Capital One, offering Capital One Shopping, a downloadable browser extension that searches various sites for shoppers. What's in your wallet? More at CapitalOneShopping.com. And from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. 
DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is NPR. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Justice Department special counsel leading two criminal investigations involving former President Donald Trump has subpoenaed local officials in at least two states. Subpoenas are among the first ones issued by Jack Smith since his appointment to special counsel last month. More from NPR's Ryan Lucas. Local officials in Wisconsin and Arizona tell NPR that they have received subpoenas from special counsel Jack Smith and that they intend to comply with them. Officials in Michigan also have reportedly been subpoenaed. A copy of the subpoena sent to Dane County Clerk Scott McDonald in Wisconsin requests all documents, records, and communications involving Donald Trump or his campaign from June 1, 2020 through January 20, 2021. It names 19 Trump campaign officials, advisors, and attorneys, including Rudy Giuliani and Bill Stepien. The request appears to be connected to Smith's investigation into key aspects of the January 6th Capitol attack, Smith is also overseeing the probe into the potential mishandling of classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Meanwhile, former President Trump's business has been found guilty of a tax evasion scheme that lasted for over a decade. NPR's Ilya Meritz has that story. Two Trump business entities were found guilty of 17 counts, ranging from criminal tax fraud to falsifying business records and conspiracy to commit grand larceny. Donald Trump was not a defendant, but his name came up again and again at trial. Prosecutors said the former president sanctioned his top executives hiding income from tax authorities. Sentencing will be in January. The maximum possible penalty is $1.6 million. The reputational harm of becoming a convicted felon could be greater. Trump's attorney says they will appeal. Ilya Meritz, NPR News, New York. The Biden administration says it will expand temporary legal status for Haitians living in the U.S. NPR's Joel Rose reports the decision could make tens of thousands of Haitians eligible for temporary protections. The Department of Homeland Security says it's expanding temporary protected status, or TPS, for Haitians because deteriorating conditions in the country are too dangerous to force their return. Haitians who are already in the U.S. as of November 6th can apply for TPS, which includes authorization to work legally. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who pushed for the expansion, says it will make more than 100,000 Haitians eligible for temporary status. The Biden administration has extended and expanded TPS for people from a number of countries, including Afghanistan and Venezuela. That's a sharp contrast to the Trump administration, which argued the protections should be temporary and repeatedly tried to end them. Joel Rose, NPR News. Voters in Georgia are deciding who should represent them in a runoff Senate election, choosing between incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock or Republican challenger Herschel Walker. The runoff election concludes a four-week blitz that's drawn a flood of outside spending. The final outcome will determine whether Democrats have a 51-49 Senate majority. 
You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor-elect Maura Healey and Boston Mayor Michelle Wu met today for the first time since Healey was elected four weeks ago. They discussed topics including housing, transportation, and the opioid and homeless problem near Mass Ave and Melnia Cass Boulevard, but they offered few specifics. Healy would not say if she backs Mayor Wu's push for rent control in Boston. The Suffolk County District Attorney will not seek to retry a man whose first-degree murder conviction was overturned earlier this year. Floyd Hamilton was convicted in the 1984 killing and robbery in Dorchester. A lower court threw out the conviction, ruling the prosecutors at the time failed to hand over evidence that would have been helpful to Hamilton's defense team. And Massachusetts is ranked number two in the nation in energy efficiency. That's according to a report released today by the American Council for Energy Efficient Economy. California is ranked number one. From 2011 to 2019, Massachusetts held the top spot in the rankings. We should keep the cloud cover overnight tonight and pretty much all day tomorrow. <clears throat> Tonight's low is about 47. Tomorrow should make it to the mid-50s, some showers from time to time. And Thursday, clear skies and sunshine up around 52 degrees. It's 6.05. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Just a quick reminder, very quick reminder, in fact, that we are making up for um, uh, some making up some lost ground in this fund drive. The fundraiser is ending tomorrow, just about this time tomorrow, and we need to raise more money in order to rent uh, to end it successfully. And we hope that you will take that seriously. And please make the call right now before we go back to the news. One eight hundred nine zero nine nine two. 87wbur.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Anthony Brooks and Amory Sievertson. And Lisa and Anthony, I have to say, I love spending time with the two of you, <laughs> but I, I'm not, Pleasure's we're not mine. here right now just for fun. We don't interrupt the news that we know you count on, that we count on, that we care about bringing to you for no reason at all. We do this because we need to. We need you. We need you to hear right now how important you are to WBUR. It's really easy to just turn on the radio and think that we've just flipped on a magic switch, but no. It takes teams of people, you know, from the reporters that you hear on air and people like Lisa Mullins holding down the mic every night from 4 to 7, to producers, to editors, to people fact-checking to people bringing you WBUR, you know, online, on stage at City Space, on podcasts, which I am lucky enough to get to work on. There is a team here, and we're, we're counting on a team of listeners out there, including you, VIP, to step up right now and be there for us. Show us that you want WBUR to continue, because the fact of the matter is, it can't and it won't without you. 1-800-909-9287 is the phone number. Go to WBUR.org. And again, we are behind where we need to be, but the good news is that you can help us make up the difference before the fundraiser ends tomorrow night. This is an important time uh, to support WBUR with local journalism under financial strain, uh, with democracy under attack. We rely more than ever on public radio and WBUR specifically in this market right here. So there's a lot at stake and time is running out. So if you haven't made a contribution, we're asking you to get in the game right now, make a monthly contribution, afford what you can. Even a small contribution of 5 or $10 a month makes a huge difference when a lot of people 
uh, join in the effort. Many hands make light work, as they say. So we're asking as many of you as possible to get off the bench and get into the game. You represent our largest share of funding, so do what you can right now. Call 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. It's really your vote of support for independent journalism, for journalism that respects your integrity and respects your time. Pledge your support for it right now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We are behind in the fund drive. We need your pledge right now. Thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. On stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The natural world is in a steep and worrying decline. More than a million species are at risk of of extinction, many within decades because of human actions. This week, delegates from around the world are gathering in Canada to try to come up with a plan to slow that decline. To talk about this convention on biological diversity, we are joined by NPR's Nathan Rod. Hey, Nate. Hey, Mary Louise. Set the stage for me a little bit more here. What exactly is happening this week in Canada? Okay, so you remember that climate conference just a few weeks ago in Egypt, COP27? Mm -hmm. This is basically the biodiversity, the nature equivalent to that. Delegates from more than 190 countries are all going to try to get together to try to approve a global plan uh, to save the natural world. A global plan to save the natural world. Just Just a small mission there. Yeah, small, small potatoes. You know, it's easy to think about biodiversity when we're talking about it as just being cute, furry critters, right? The polar bear at risk from declining sea ice. Uh, But when we are talking about biodiversity, really, we're talking about so much more here. The science is extremely clear on this. Healthy, intact nature is essential to pretty much every part of the human experience. You know, trees and plankton make the oxygen we breathe, wetlands clean the water we drink, peatlands store climate warming carbon, biodiversity feeds us, it pays the bills. Uh, Here's Elizabeth Maruma Mremma, the executive secretary of the Convention on Biological Diversity. 50% of the global GDP, our economy, depends on biodiversity. And yet, we human beings, we have distorted that biodiversity nature by 97% globally. So she says the main goal of this convention is to basically balance the scales, to come out of this with a roadmap for fixing that relationship with nature. What kind of a roadmap? What, What might it look like? So there's a draft that we've been able to see. It has 22 specific goals. Probably the flashiest goal in that is a pledge to conserve 30% of the Earth's land and water by the year 2030. It's also known as 30 by 30. The Biden administration is taking steps already to do this here in the U.S., uh, but what that looks like globally is still a really big question. There are concerns in some parts of the world that this could enable countries to displace indigenous people by declaring a place conserved which, remember, Mary Louise, is basically what happened with national parks here in the U.S. (laughs) Scientists say humans have significantly altered 75% of the Earth's land and two-thirds of the oceans. And a study published last year, which was far bleaker, uh, suggested only 3%, just 3% of the world's natural places are still ecologically intact. Um, So obviously, there's a huge need to protect areas. 
But remember, this is a convention of more than 190 countries uh, who will all have to agree on a path forward. And as we saw at the climate conference last month, uh, there's going to be disagreements about what that actually looks like. Well, and having just interviewed you when you were at that climate conference in Egypt, it was it was very clear. It's one thing to set goals. It's another to keep them, to do them. Is that concern here as well? It most definitely is. You know, we've had 27 climate conferences and climate warming emissions are still on the rise. Uh, The same is very true here. The last big framework on biodiversity, like the one they're doing now, set 20 goals to achieve for the year 2020. They did not achieve any of them. Uh, And given the rate of extinction we're seeing, the climate disasters like flooding, fires and droughts, you know, there's a real sense that this framework needs to not only be ambitious, it needs to be achieved. That is Nathan Rott from NPR's Climate Desk. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Ultranationalists are about to have a lot more power in Israel. And in a moment, we're going to get a tour of some hotspots where they could exert their influence the most. Benjamin Netanyahu is returning as prime minister with a coalition that includes the far right. It will be perhaps the most right-wing government in Israel's history. One prominent member will be Itamar Ben-Gvir, previously convicted for anti-Arab racism and now on tap to oversee the Israeli police. NPR's Daniel Estrin has been exploring what this could mean, and he joins us now from Jerusalem. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Wana. So, Daniel, this government is being watched for how it might change the nature of Israel's democracy and whether it could escalate ongoing violence between Israelis and Palestinians. And you started at perhaps the most combustible place, the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. Yeah, this is the most revered holy site in the Holy Land. It is often the eye of the storm here. This is a place that's sacred to Muslims around the world. It's associated with the Prophet Muhammad. It's also sacred in Jewish tradition as the spot where the ancient temple stood in biblical times. And nationalist Jewish groups have been asserting their presence at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound more and more. They want the right to pray there. Whenever we've seen that Palestinians perceive Israelis are encroaching on this site, we've seen violence and that violence spreads. And there is the chance that the potential for violence could be higher under the incoming Israeli government. Itamar Ben-Gvir has been a longtime proponent of Jewish prayer at this Muslim-run site. He is tapped to oversee the police as the Minister of National Security. And so nationalist Jewish groups who visit there every day are feeling really good right now. They're feeling that they're going to get more rights at uh, what they consider to be the Temple Mount. I was there with them recently. So who were you with and what did you see there? Yeah, I was with a group of 20 Orthodox Jews. They walked the perimeter of this compound every morning. And when I spoke with one of the Jewish activists, Rabbi Shimshon Elboim, he says, listen, our strategy is baby steps. He's hoping that this new Israeli government might start with allowing them more expanded visiting hours for Jews, uh, maybe eventually leading to Jewish prayer. I asked him, could Jewish prayer at this Muslim-run site inflame the entire Middle East? And he says, you know, Israel, the country, also came into being through war. No one gives up their dreams just because it comes with a price. So, Daniel, what do Palestinians at this religious site think about what the new Israeli government might end up doing? I spoke about that with a member of the Muslim Advisory Council there, Mustafa Abu Sway. And he says, you know, listen, this is a mosque complex. It's administered by Jordan. It's been a Muslim-run religious site for hundreds of years. And he thinks Jewish groups are trying to change that. I am worried. I am very worried. I am really worried. 
And remember, last year, tensions at this site concerning Israeli police violence against Palestinian demonstrators escalated into a full-fledged war with Gaza. I'm curious, what about inside Israel? How could this new government affect relationships between Palestinians and Jewish Israelis who sometimes are sharing the same towns? That's right. We're talking about the 20% of Israel's citizens who are Palestinian Arab. And this is a big question that Israel faces. Can it be a Jewish state and still protect democracy and equal rights for its Palestinian citizens. Um, These are people who frequently face discrimination in Israel. And this new Israeli government is going to be prioritizing Israel's Jewish character. So a good place to imagine how these tensions might be playing out is a city called Lod. This is a city where Arabs and Jews literally live in the same apartment buildings side by side. Last year, when there was tension at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Palestinian citizens in Lod protested, and there were street fights. I was there. I saw burned-out cars. I saw synagogues and mosques that were damaged and attacked. Arab and Jewish neighbors in this city were killed. And when I went back to that city last week to ask people about this new Israeli government, I met a rabbi there, Chagai Greenfield. His synagogue was damaged last year, and he is happy about the new government. The story is a struggle between identities, the Jewish identity and the Arab identity. It won't be solved by regular civilian uh, rights. It cannot be solved by that way. It has to be solved by, by showing the Arabs that the Jews are the ones that rule over. And he told me that he only felt safe last year when armed Israeli volunteers, basically militia, were roaming the streets. And Itamar Ben-Gvir was actually the one who encouraged those armed Israelis to go to that town last year. And now... As Minister of National Security, he wants tougher policing of Arabs and Palestinians. This has Palestinians in the city worried, that this is just a preview of what is to come under the new government. I spoke with an Arab city councilman from a neighboring city. His name is Mino Abu Laban. Here's what he said. He told me a man like Ben Gvir, who incites against me, is now going to be responsible for my safety. So, Daniel, we have talked about Palestinian-Israeli relations, Arab-Jewish relations. What else can you tell us about what these incoming far-right leaders plan to do in government? They're talking about a lot of far-reaching policies that could affect pluralism and could affect democratic institutions in Israel. I attended a meeting of democracy activists who are trying to map out what to expect. This is Shatil, an umbrella organization that advises NGOs, civil society groups in Israel. And they're predicting that the first major step this Israeli government could take is a major overhaul of the legal system, the independence of the judiciary, making the Supreme Court not be the final say in Israeli legislation. And remember, the Supreme Court in Israel is historically the branch of government that defends Palestinians and minority rights and protections for African asylum seekers and so many more. So, Daniel, given all of the scenarios that you've described so far, it leaves me wondering, will Benjamin Netanyahu let his far-right allies really do all of these things? It's an excellent question because the far-right does have a lot of leverage over Netanyahu. He is on trial for corruption, and his far-right allies are willing to manipulate the legal system to shield him from prison time. Now, Netanyahu is making the case he's going to be the one in control here. He's going to be protecting LGBTQ rights. He's going to be responsible with policy. Another question is how will the U.S. view all of this? The Biden administration is concerned about 
Israeli democracy under this new government. It's concerned about policy it might take toward Palestinians. The question is, how much will the Biden administration be willing to push back on the far right in Israel's new government? That's NPR's Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Daniel, thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event through January 2nd. On Wall Street, the Dow fell about 1% today, 351 points to close at 33,596. S&P and NASDAQ followed suit. The S&P closed lower for a fourth straight day. It was down nearly 1.5% to end the day at 3941. The Nasdaq fell 2% to close at 11,015. All the details coming up uh, on Marketplace starting at 630 it's now 621, and in the forecast, lots of clouds tonight, sporadic showers, and then tomorrow, clouds and showers once again, not too chilly. Overnight tonight in the mid-40s, tomorrow about the mid-50s. Sunshine should finally move back on in Thursday with temperatures in the low 50s. 54 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights, Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advanced tickets required at stonezoo.org. Coming up, we're going to be hearing about Emmy Award-winning actress Kersey Alley, known for starring in Cheers. She died yesterday at the age of 71. It's just one of the many stories that you have heard today and that you will hear today because of WBUR, because of everybody who has given in the past. Uh, we are looking for your pledge right now, and especially right now, because we are short in our fund drive. We are behind where we should be right now. And um, and frankly, we're hoping that you will do your part and step up to the plate if you haven't. If you have, by the way, thank you. Thank you so much. If you haven't, please be a listener who contributes. Please be a full-fledged supporter of WBUR by contributing $10 a month, $15 a month, a one-time pledge if you can, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I am here in the studio with Anthony Brooks and also Amory Sievertson. Hello. And when and when we say that you make up the largest share of the money that makes WBUR possible, we mean you really are the foundation of WBUR. You keep us strong. You make it possible for us to stand up and, and bring you everything that you count on, everything that you rely on. You know, the truth, the humanity, the analysis. You know that when you turn on WBUR, even if you may have seen a headline break somewhere else, WBUR is the place that's going to make it make sense. We're going to, you know, enrich your understanding of of what is happening on, you know, on Capitol Hill and in our backyards here in the Boston region. That matters. That matters that you have a place that you can trust to bring you the information like that. And you turn us on for free. You know, you get this for free. So we're asking you to support it because you choose to, because you believe in it, because you want to see it continue. And you want everyone in your community to have access to this. We need you right now. We're significantly behind. We can only close this out with you. So please call 1-800-909-9287. Go to WBUR.org and make a contribution, whether it's $10 or $10 a month or $100 a month.
We're here to give you the news honestly, dispassionately, and accurately. And we have a bit of a news flash about this fundraiser. We are behind. That means we're at risk of ending the fundraiser tomorrow uh, behind where we need to be. And that sets up a whole series of chain reactions that are complicated and difficult to, 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 to deal with, especially for the folks who crunch the numbers here and make sure we have the money that we need. But what we can do about that is for you right now to call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org right now and make a monthly contribution. Give what you can Give what you can afford. Give as generously as you can because you do represent the largest share of funding for WBUR. And if you value our programming because you listen to our programming, we're asking you to get off the bench and get involved in this game and, and help support the news on WBUR and all of the coverage and all of the great programming that you've come to depend on. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. You know, when you hear stories uh, such as uh, the one you just heard, the far-right ultra-nationalists who are part of the incoming Israeli government uh, from Daniel Estrin, we heard earlier about Frank Langford, who is covering Jiang Zemin's uh, funeral in China. Uh, we heard about, of course, former President Donald Trump's company being convicted of tax fraud. We're going to be hearing about the actress Kirstie Alley, who died after a very short battle with an illness. And this is, you know, we really cover the waterfront. And there are reporters, there are engineers, there are editors um, who and fact checkers behind each one of these stories. So if you appreciate that, and of course you do, or you wouldn't have chosen to listen to these stories on WBUR, please support it right now with your phone call, with your pledge online, 90.9 WBUR, WBUR.org is the website, 1-800-909-9287. The truth is that we are behind in the fund drive. It's not a comfortable place for us to be because we only ask for what we need. There's no fat in our budget. So make the phone call right now. Help us get ahead because the fundraiser ends in just about 24 hours. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Thank you so much. Stars who worked with actor Kirstie Alley are paying tribute after her death yesterday. Ted Danson, who worked with Alley on the TV sitcom Cheers, told People magazine that he's, quote, grateful for all the times she made him laugh. Jamie Lee Curtis, who was Alley's co-star on Scream Queens, wrote, she was a beautiful mama bear in real life, and she added that they agreed to disagree about some things. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has this remembrance. When Kirstie Alley joined Cheers in 1987, she replaced Shelley Long, one of the most beloved members of the cast. Bill Carter was a TV writer for the New York Times. I was dubious, but everyone involved in the show was so impressed with her because she, first of all, fit right in, but she was also fearless, absolutely fearless. I prefer the Fortune 500 type. One who owns blocks, not one who plays with them. As the new Cheers bar manager, Allie was gorgeous, smart, confident, and the perfect foil for the womanizing bartender played by Ted Danson. I want to sleep with you 25 times, but you don't want to sleep with me at all, am I right? Right. Okay, so what's half of 25? Your IQ? Percy Alley won her first of two Emmys for Cheers. The second was for playing a mother whose son has autism in the 1994 TV movie David's Mother. 
Allie grew up in Kansas. Her father owned a lumber company. She was introduced to Scientology in the 1970s. She wrote in her memoir that she was a drugged out mess at the time. She told Us Magazine, Scientology made her a lot stronger and tougher. Allie didn't yet call herself an actor when she was a contestant on Match Game with host Gene Rayburn in 1979. Kirsty, <laughs> as in thirsty, huh? Where do you live? I live in Wichita, Kansas. Specifically, what is your address and phone number? No, I'm only kidding. And right away, you can see Allie's trademark sass. She raises her eyebrows and smiles as if to say, who is this jerk? Others noticed it too, and soon her TV and movie career was launched. She was truly funny. Every time I saw her, she was funny. Brenda Hampton and Kirstie Alley co-created the comedy Fat Actress in the early 2000s. If you want to get your own show, you're going to have to lose some weight. Well, why can't I just get a show first and then lose the weight? That's not the way it works, my friend. You know what, my friend? It does work that way with the guys. I mean, look, John Goodman's got his own show, and... Jason Alexander looks like a frickin' bowling ball. I need to... Hampton says she loved working with Allie. She could be aggressive but reasonable. She says a lot of Scientologists worked on the set. I was afraid I would, you know, they would try to recruit me or there would be a lot of talk of Scientology, but that just didn't happen, and it was a very fun set. During the pandemic, Allie disparaged the idea of vaccine passports and wrote that fear of dying is CNN's mantra. She also believed she was blackballed by Hollywood for supporting Donald Trump. Bill Carter believes Scientology colored her career. And it's interesting, it colored her career in ways it has clearly not for Tom Cruise, but it didn't, didn't hurt or in any way change the feelings about her that I've heard from people who work with her who always admired her. In a statement posted on social media, Allie's daughters write, our mother's zest and passion for life, her children, grandchildren, and her many animals, not to mention her eternal joy of creating, were unparalleled and leave us inspired to live life to the fullest just as she did. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. This is All Things Considered. WBUR supporters include Buckaloo's General Store. Gifts, specialty foods, craft beer, wine, plus festive custom baskets for holiday giving in Melrose and at BuckaloosGeneralStore.com. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 23rd. SemesterOff.com.